Welcome to Studio Class. I'm Megan Enan, your host and diva sidekick. I'm a mezzo-soprano on a mission to change the world through the commissioning, performance, and proliferation of new music. Are you just beginning your singing career? In the midst of building your successful empire? Or anywhere in between? I hope you'll join me in this second season as we talk about the ins and outs of both a traditional and non-traditional singing path. It's not always easy, and if your experience is anything like mine, we barely scratched the surface of this in studio class. However, I'm here to give you the micro-actions that over time will transform your relationship to your career. Let's do this. In this 18th episode, we're taking a slightly different approach. It's been a little while since I've posted a new episode, and I want to tell you about that. Then, we're going to rely on the wisdom of Ellen Heistein and her book, Making Music in Looking Glass Land, to help us get a lay of the land for us that are out there performing and composing our little hearts out. Ready? Because here we go. All right, divas, thank you so much for sticking with me. I know that it has been quite a while since I have posted a new episode. I hope that you didn't feel like I abandoned you. (laughs) So this year, like for most of my colleagues or many of my colleagues, has been a very intense year or a very challenging year. And I'm sorry that I took a break from podcasting, but I'm back and I'm hoping to share more exciting studio class episodes with you. Uh... I fell hard into some burnout. I knew that it was coming along, and maybe you can hear it if you listen to some past episodes, and I needed to take some time to kind of reconnect with my intrinsic motivation for singing. Perhaps you also feel that way sometimes, too, or composing or any sort of performing that you do. And you can read about it. I wrote about uh, getting out of burnout for... For New Music Box, I'll post that link in in the show notes if you want to read how I used some goal-setting exercises to kind of help me get back into the flow of things. Um, however, that burnout really made me think about, you know, what is it that I want to have fill up my time? What do I want to be focusing on as a performer, as a teacher, as a consultant, as a writer about music and all of those things. And how do I want my time to be filled? And very many or you know, I talk to so many people out there about how to make their musical life look the way they want it to. And, and I had to take some time and take my own medicine, so to speak, and think about, you know, how do I want to show up in the world of music And am I doing that or am I following a lot of I should do this or I should do that? And so perhaps I'll talk more about that. If you're interested in more of my tips on how to get out of burnout, you know, please let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. I'm at MezzoEnen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N, at MezzoEnen. And I'm happy to share those things on the podcast if that's something that's interesting to you all. 
However, uh, I wanted to kind of get back into some of the stuff that we usually talk about. And so we're talking about uh, getting a lay of the land today with our friend Ellen Heistein. And she wrote this book called Making Music and Looking Glass Land. And perhaps some of you know it. And we're kind of using her chapter, The Lay of the Land, to give us a jumping off point today. So she writes, the field of classical music is, for most performers, like looking glass land, you know, like Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland, etc. There are very few individuals who, because of circumstance, extreme youth combined with extraordinary ability, acknowledged elder of statesman status or an extra musical and sensational entry into the field, for example, seem able to leave their career development problems to others. But they are very few and far between. For most musicians, the effort to stay in the same place, to keep working in the field, is constant and endless. When I read this part, I I immediately react and I start going, oh gosh, it's like that constant and endless feeling is like, oh, okay, if you weren't born with a silver spoon in music, then your life has to be this sort of constant and endless struggle in music. And I want to make sure that through studio class, I'm not encouraging you to, to buy into that life. I'm not encouraging you to buy into a constant and endless struggle. I am, however, saying, you know, we focus on how to move forward in this path. Perhaps we are not the people who, as Ellen writes, extreme youth combined with extraordinary ability. Perhaps we were not prodigies. Most of us were not. <laughs> like, and actually a lot of people that are having excellent musical careers are not prodigies. And acknowledged elder statesman status or extra musical and sensational entry into the field. I bet you could probably look around and notice people that, yes, have connections, family connections to being in music that allowed them to know more about the field before they jumped in. Or you can look around and say, oh, you know, because they have more access to resources, they were able to create that more sensational entry into the field. However, being in music, having a career in music is not dependent on those. Those are, as Ellen writes, a once in a lifetime kind of experience that that it doesn't mean that you have to have those things to gain entry to the field. However, it means that you can't operate as though those are part of your background when they aren't. The performer is dependent for the success of this effort on the supportive assistance and goodwill of an exceptionally large group of people. He or she needs the enthusiasm, interest, confidence, and familiarity of presenters, conductors, managers, the press, colleagues, and audience. (laughs) The classical music field is certainly not unique in this. Other fields, politics, for one, share in the fact that without the support of a large personal constituency, one's career efforts are likely to fail. However, classical musicians are perhaps unique in believing the myth that great artistry and more practicing are all they need, and that having to go out and work on developing a constituency is proof of artistic failure. Oh my gosh, can you believe this phrase? that going out and working on developing a constituency is proof of artistic failure. I am sure that none of us listening to studio class believe that having to develop a constituency is proof of artistic failure. If 
you are still under that assumption, please join us and realize that that's not a failure. That's actually you moving to the next level. You're you're upping your game, realizing that it's not just the hours in the practice room. It's not just what you took away from your teachers and your mentors. It's also developing a following, people that, that look up to you, that find you influential in your music making, that make this so exciting. So I've probably told this story on the podcast before. However, I think I was under the delusion at one point. I had heard a few mentors in my life be be like, oh, well, you know, music is, quote unquote, all about who you know in this very condescending way. And I thought, oh, well, that's really awful. I, I hope that I work really hard and make sure that if I'm working really hard, then it's not a game about who you know. And, and I didn't realize that what they were showing me was that they didn't feel very confident in, in the side of music making that is about developing a network. And so they thought that that was, that, that was a negative thing, that you weren't a, like that, that it, it was an artistic failure to have to know people to make music together. And I realized along the way that, oh, it's just part of the game. Part of the game is, is having skills, having your materials in order, and also working on creating an excellent network because it is about making music with people that you enjoy making music with. This is a field in which you need to make sure that you're making music with people that you like. <laughs> like so, um, so when I read this about the performer is dependent for the success of this effort on the supportive assistance and goodwill of an exceptionally large group of people, it's incredibly true. Think about how many opportunities you have in a day in which you need to ask for other people's help in which to make that happen. You need their aid and assistance. You, Yes, we run into gatekeepers all the time because we are constantly negotiating working towards an end goal. It's not the same thing as being in an office where all, all of the people that you come into contact are working towards the same goal as you. You are in a freelance life having to work with other people to make sure that both of your goals are realized. And that is a large group of people that you have to work with all the time. And so I want you to go through Divas, think about this for a second, that when she writes, he or she needs the enthusiasm, interest, and confidence and familiarity of presenters, conductors, managers, the press, colleagues, and audience. I don't want that list of groups of people to overwhelm you, but I do want you to think about um, how many of those people are on my side already, how many presenters, conductors, managers, how many members of the press, how many colleagues, how many audience members do I bring to any one opportunity or any one circumstance? How many people are already on team me, <laughs> if you will. And and like I said, I don't want this to overwhelm you. I want that to show you where you can efficiently focus your efforts so that you're bringing more people into your sphere of influence so that you are bringing more people into the work that you're doing. And so we go on. In this fantasy, the performer is encouraged by a system of training which, by and large, addresses only the question of how to sound good enough for the job rather than how to get the job. In fairness, since it is very difficult indeed to achieve great proficiency as a performer, the overwhelming amount of the conservatories and teachers' attention 
is necessarily directed to a restricted number of musical issues. Also, a few people seem naturally to have the political savvy and creative instincts, which can win them admiration and employment. But working at developing these qualities is often seen within the field as detracting from the main business of playing, and the acquisition of them, if not discouraged, is generally not applauded. I bet you can think of probably some colleagues or perhaps yourself when you have demonstrated being able to talk to other people that that is not a skill that is as highly applauded or highly lauded, if you will, as the music making itself. And I would encourage you to think differently about that. Think of this as your skills or your musical talent, your which is also your skills, your materials, and your network as three buckets that you need to continually fill up. If one of them is running low, they don't they don't work together. You're not full. You're not really achieving what you want to achieve. So we want to continually fill, fill these buckets. If you're not filling the buckets, then then we're missing a, a generous portion of how to make your career happen. And so I, if you have been told <laughs> that, that, this, that this charm or political savvy or people skills or um, extroversion is, is not useful to you, I want you to remember that that's, that's not an actual thing. That's not a real fact. That's actually getting in the way of how we make this career work. And so I want you to keep going with this idea that, yes, in our educational and training programs, their jobs are to help us be better singers in a lot of technical, artistic, creative ways. And part of that can be business savvy, uh, networking savvy, all of those things. However, they don't often have the time. I know that I very rarely have the time working one-on-one with my applied students to get into the nitty-gritty of how to make the the networking bucket be totally full in their lives because it's my job to show up and help them make the skills bucket be very full. And so I want to fully show up for them in that way. And it can be very difficult. And I hear a lot of people say, well, I never learned this in school. And I understand that entirely. But I want you to realize that that you learned so many other things that there weren't, that they didn't have time to to help with this part. So you're gaining this knowledge now. And that's not a detriment. It just means that there's more to learn. We know there's always more to learn. So going on, most musicians want to survive as musicians and are willing to to work to make that happen. I mean, I am. I bet you are. (laughs) It is impossible, even with great effort and great talent, to guarantee a major career. Uh, Ellen underlines this line, it is impossible, even with great effort and great talent, to guarantee a major career. And I feel like this might be a little too much here. That, that yes, uh, we weren't given the same benefits. We didn't have a silver spoon. We're not given money and time and all sorts of resources to make sure that we can have the career that we want to have. However, I think that we all have our ideas, our own ideas of what a major career means to us. 
And I want you to realize that any career you dream in your mind is possible, that you are able to make that career happen in your life. And just because someone else writes in a book that it's impossible, even with great effort and great talent, to guarantee a major career, it simply means that often we work on one area or two areas of a career and and don't realize our dreams. However, if we work on multiple areas of our career and and make the dreams and then achieve the dreams that we want to, it's not impossible. It just is, it's the work. That's the work, is, is a long-term process of uncovering your own career, your own actual desires, and making sure that you're very clear with yourself about what it is that you want to do. So going on, such careers exist as the result of a confluence of factors, many not under the control of either the performer or the performer's advisors. Even if you have a giant team, that doesn't, that doesn't mean or guarantee that we're going to suddenly be making millions of dollars. I get that. However, I want you to really think about the career that you want and start thinking about what are the pieces that come together for that jigsaw puzzle to make sense. It is probably possible, however, to make a career which allows the performer to keep making music before the public. It does take some changes in most musicians thinking about the field and their role in it. I don't want this to be, um, I don't want this to be a, a downer. I don't want that to be something where you're like, oh, I better, I better reel back in how I think I'm going to be in the music field. I want you to think about exactly what lights you up as a musician and figure out how to bring that into your life. So to maximize the chance of being in demand as a performer, you, the artist, must, number one, know the marketplace. You have never heard me say this before, have you, divas? (laughs) So this, this part is particularly interesting because she writes, understand who is listening to music and when, where, why, and how they're listening. Who pays for the creation and performance of music and how music and audiences are brought together? Be able to see where flexibility exists in these market conditions and how they can be influenced by a creative approach. I would bet that most of my coaching consulting clients have not actually sat down and thought about who is listening to the kind of music that they're creating When are they listening to that music? Where are they listening to that music? Why are they listening to that music? And how are they listening? In fact, pause this podcast right now. I would love for you to write down who is listening to the music I create. When are they listening to the music I create? How often are they listening to the music I create? Where do they listen to the music I create? Why do they listen to the music I create? And really think about that. And then that's your, that's one of your audiences. We've talked about, you know, primary and secondary audiences, even tertiary audiences on this podcast before. And it is not, it is not a bad exercise to go through. Think about your primary audience. Think about your secondary audience and even your tertiary audience and ask yourself, who is listening to this music, primary, secondary, tertiary? When, where, why, and how are they listening to this music, primary, secondary, and tertiary? 
then move on to the next question, which is who pays for the creation and performance of music? I want you to really think about this for a moment and ask yourself, who is paying for the music that's getting created? And I want you to actually think about who is paying in exchange of value and who is paying in actual dollars for this music to get created. There is a difference. So we want to make sure that you know an exchange of value and actual dollars are both valuable. However, I want you to know that there is a difference between those and who's paying in what way and is that enough to create a sustainable life in this art form for yourself? And then how music and audiences are brought together. Oh my gosh, this is a podcast to itself. (laughs) So like, wait for that one. I'll be back with that in a minute. (laughs) And then be able to see where flexibility exists in these market conditions. That we, we have this beautiful ability. We see the world creatively. We see the world in all these different lenses. And we're able to pull these threads together. Do not despair, divas. You can really think yourself through all of these. Okay, we go on to after know the marketplace, to know the customer, and then see the field from the consumer's point of view, including those of the various groups in your constituency. So this is often a, a dirty word in, in the field of high art, you don't see my air quotes, in high art music or, or traditional classical music is... Unless you're on the marketing team for an opera company, (laughs) like everyone else is, oh, clutch my pearls. I have to see the field from a consumer's point of view. And I know that's that's hyperbole and I'm making fun of this, but there are still some that that regularly take to social media to to air their grievances about this. But it's the world is really changing, friends, that see the field from the consumer's point of view is actually how people are thinking about this. We want to see classical music from the, the point of view of the people who want to enjoy it. I don't only want to live in a world in which the people in the audience are just the only people that are waiting for their turn to get up on stage. I want to live in a classical music world in which people actively seek out the listening opportunity. They go to be generous listeners. And I want to cultivate that. And I bet that you do too. So I don't think that see the field from the consumer's point of view is actually a dirty word at all. I think that if we really think about what is the experience that they're about to have with this music and how can we make that even better, I don't think that's bringing down the art whatsoever. And I doubt that you feel that way too. So, and then finally is know yourself. I'm big on this on the podcast. It's really important that we that we show up First and foremost, knowing who we are, our ambitions, our goals, our values, etc. So Ellen writes, understand specifically and precisely what you have to contribute to the field, what makes you unique as a musician. And friends, this takes time. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are an emerging professional or, or training at the moment and you don't entirely know yet, that's okay. You're not in that season And it is your job to take in as much information as possible until that information starts to coalesce into knowing who you are and what your specific gifts are and how you want to show up in the world as a musician. Do not worry if you are if you are unsure yet. Just realize that you're in the season of still discovering that and bringing that together. 
So acting on this knowledge does not imply changing to suit a current craze. I'm not about uh, following trends. We we aren't about that in the first place. We've chosen this career. <laughs> like a, so, or creating false relationships with those said to be important and influential. It's really not about that. We're not here to jump on the bandwagon of anything that pops up, you know, trend-wise in in our culture. We're also not here to create false relationships with other people. We're here to kind of interact with others musically and realize whether or not we're a good fit. Do we make a good fit? And then can we bring even more dedicated, committed musicianship to the world together? So rather, this understanding must be used to find your own supportive constituency and to create opportunities for sharing your particular musical vision with others. So we go on to the next part, which is the marketplace. It's important to understand that the field of classical music is a marketplace with buyers and sellers, consumers and products. <laughs> I know there are so many people that would be listening to this right now and just rolling their eyes. Can you feel their eyes like popping out of their sockets? The consumers and buyers are a varied bunch, including audiences, concert presenters, musical colleagues, conductors, orchestra managers, artist managers, and others. The press and electronic media and patrons as in any marketplace there is money being made and spent please do not forget this in our field friends there is money being made and spent do not be the only one who is spending money without making money understanding where the money is and what causes it to move around is basic to understanding why the field functions as it does. Buckle up, friends. This is about to get real. (laughs) As in any marketplace, there is at any given time more or less interest in a specific item. There are fashions and trends caused by social, cultural, and economic factors. It is a buyer's market. To demonstrate this in regard to performers, you need only attend one of the big performing arts trade shows. If you're not familiar with these, please, please, please go look up the performing arts trade shows, um, APAP, uh, PAE, any of these things, West Arts. You can look up all of these things. If you happen to be in the area of one of these, please go check it out. It's such an informative way of knowing what's getting booked and what's not getting booked. And go make some friends <laughs> and see the market in action. Visiting the biggest of these. Ah, so what what Ellen's talking about is right here. What I was just saying is uh, APAP is Association of Performing Arts Presenters. And let's see here. So she writes, picture the enormous convention rooms of a major New York City hotel filled with booths manned by managers and artists ranging from the giants like Columbia Artists Management to individual players. So what we're saying is there are essentially these... Uh, aggregates, these places where people come together. If you're not familiar with these arts trade shows, please start looking into it because it's a way, if you have an ensemble, if you have, um, if you just go and go to some of the sessions, there's lots of people there that will help you be more connected in the field. So, Uh, representatives of organizations presenting performers like from Lincoln Center to small art series in tiny towns across the country wander among the booths looking for something new, something different, or perhaps looking for their friends and for the same tried and true performances that have worked for them in the past. So like any conference, this is where people get together. They see people that they know. They ask them, 
Who do you suggest, right? Who, who have you booked recently? Is that going to fit into my budget? Is that something that I should do? This doesn't have to, if you are working that freelance life, going to a trade show or being one of the showcases at a trade show can be incredibly helpful if if your show, if your performance is ready for it. If you're ready to get booked by presenters all over the country, it doesn't have to feel so one-off all, all the time. And just going, like I said, to the sessions or going and mingling in the exhibition area where all the booths are, you can really meet, you can meet presenters and organizations from all over the country that might give you some clues and insight into where you should be putting your efforts and your interests. So the sellers seem to far outnumber the buyers. Oh, isn't that always the case in classical music? (laughs) Each of the booths operated by a management represents a roster of artists. Simple arithmetic is all that's needed to demonstrate how few opportunities there are relative to the number of artists who want them. Further divide the number of performance slots available by the number that feature music and then by the few that want classical music. And then remember, all those musicians not on display competing for the same jobs. So again, this is not this is not to deter us. This is just to remind us of that we're in a we're in a saturated field in a lot of ways, but that doesn't mean that exactly what we do is the saturation point. If you have started to figure out what your unique selling point is, your USP, if you will, what your unique selling point is as a musician, then you can start to create your own niche. You can start to say, this is what I do really well. This is why audiences are interested in me. And part of building your constituency is recognizing what audiences respond to. If they're responding to a certain thing that you're doing, then you know that you can use that as a marketing tool in this area of working with sellers and buyers. <laughs> and so, okay, going on. Other conditions have contributed to musicians' marketing difficulties. Among them is the fact that artists are often hired apart from direct experiences of them as performers. On the basis of third-party recommendations from managers, critics, colleagues, or teachers, or materials such as pictures, flyers, and demo tapes. And because of the current state of music education and the complexities of the way the field is administered, even when presenters have the opportunity to actually hear the artist in live performance, they may not be capable or confident in their own ability to distinguish great from merely good or even merely competent music making. What all this means is simply too few jobs chased by too many good musicians. The artist must therefore define clear, realistic career goals in the field and understand what may be required, both musically and extra musically, to achieve them. I do want to go back to this for a second about that artists are often hired apart from direct experience, which is to say that part of what we do, because it's not just our skills that make us hireable, it's our materials and our networking because there are so many times in which social proof, this idea that because someone else says that you're good, it's like the Yelp idea, right? If if there are 600 reviews on Yelp that say a restaurant is unbelievably good, you're going to be like, okay, all right, I'll go there, right? <laughs> if there's only five reviews and three of them are like, well, this is a place, <laughs> then, 
then you're probably going to be like, oh, maybe we should go somewhere else. I don't know. Maybe we should check something else out. And so do not discount the fact that social proof plays a big part in how you get hired when it comes to if your materials or even if your skills are on par with another performer or if your skills as a composer are on par with another composer, it will likely fall to social proof. Oh, have I heard that this person is uh, easy to work with? Have I heard that this person helps draw an audience? Have I heard that this person is really aff- um, affecting on stage? Then then there, that will tip it in your favor. So do not discount the fact that we, obviously we want all of our skills to be 100%. And yet... There are other factors that help us get the job. So we're going on to the customer. We did the marketplace. Now we're on to the customer. So you need people to provide the support, which will make it possible for you to work. Among them are, number one, fans. (laughs) Audiences who will come to hear you or hear your music if you're a composer. Pay for tickets, applaud, tell their friends, write to the concert presenter to get you rehired and come again. Number two, presenters. People who will hire you to play. Number three, colleagues. Other musicians or people in the field who will often be the primary source of direct employment or referrals for work and who offer a network of musical and emotional support. And fourth, we have patrons, individuals who have the wherewithal to provide financial or other support for career development when it's needed. When we've talked about uh, primary, secondary, tertiary audiences in the past, I have mentioned to you that one of the things that I've done is make sure that in a lot of my materials, I am consistently targeting presenters. Oftentimes, my primary audience is presenters because that's the person I want to hire me. That's my first point of contact. I have to get them to bring me on board before I can do the second part. And so I don't think of fans as my primary audience, but I think of fans as my secondary audience because it's really incredibly important that they're there. However, I have to get booked before <laughs> before I can bring an audience. I don't think of them as secondary as in they don't count. I think of sec- them as primary and secondary as in how do I market myself for both of these, but it's in a funnel of action. So I have to start with my primary audience, which is presenters. I have to start with getting them on board. And then I can, once once I've made it past them and I get booked for a gig, then I can switch gears and start working towards my secondary audience, which is actual listeners that want to come to the concert and bringing more people in. And then, oh, say, so we go on. All of these consumers behave much as consumers of any other product or service do. Cue the eye rolling again. They tend to think of the familiar and the well-known before the less familiar and obscure. Do not worry, new music people. Just because something is unfamiliar doesn't mean that people don't like it. It just means that you have to do some more access points. They operate with a set of restrictions, budgetary, aesthetic, etc., which affect their choices. So when you're thinking through how do I encourage these people to get on board with me is... When you're thinking about their restrictions, their budgetary restrictions, their aesthetic restrictions, etc., when you're thinking about those, you can start to do kind of what they call like opposition research, right? What 
would be the reason why somebody wouldn't come. Oh, the concert is $50 a ticket. Hmm, what's a way that I can make that a little less of a barrier to people who might want to come to this, right? $50 a ticket would be pretty intense. Say you're buying two tickets to a concert, that's a hundred bucks. And there are not a lot of people that are willing to drop a hundred bucks on a ticket that they don't know anything about the performance or how the performance is going to go. So be aware of those restrictions or those barriers and see how you can do that. Maybe you can't bring down the ticket price. Maybe you can't, but perhaps you can bring people so close to the production or get them so involved or get them or make them so aware of what's going on and what what they'll like about it that that hundred bucks seems like this is money well spent. So yes, some of those restrictions or some of those barriers don't change. However, find the creative solutions that help you do change them. And then they tend to like to choose and work with their friends. (laughs) Going back to (laughs) social proof, going back to recommendations. Honey, get your Yelp review ready to go. So... (laughs) So part of successfully working with a constituency, therefore, is developing friendly relationships with these consumers. So self-knowledge, this is where we're really getting, is this know thyself idea. It stands to reason that in an overcrowded field, the person who stands out is the one who has something very special, even unique to offer. Obviously, you are in the best position to know what you have that is unique. For many artists, defining and articulating what these special qualities are, specifically rather than generally, is very difficult. But it's absolutely essential. If you don't know what about you is special, those who don't know you certainly won't know. If you don't know what about you is special, you won't be able to tell anyone. If you can't tell anyone what about you is special, then you may not get the opportunity to show what you have to offer to an audience, and they won't get to hear these special qualities for themselves. So once the principle is accepted that it's not enough to be good, it's not enough to be skilled, it's not enough to have, you know, golden voices of angels, (laughs) but you must let others know that you're good. You can follow some quite specific guidelines in moving toward making a consistent and fulfilling life in music. It's useful to keep in mind that starting out in music requires the same investment of time, money, and marketing creativity as starting a small business. It also may require the same kind of hard-nosed business decisions, how scarce hours are best spent, how resources, financial and otherwise, can be put to maximum use. So like any business person, the musician needs, number one, credentials, Number two, effective communication materials. Number three, a supportive network of customers. Number four, the ability to deliver the goods when the job has been landed. So, divas, what I'm really trying to say here is that, yes, we need all of the music musical skills. I, I wouldn't want you to not have those, and that's not what I'm trying to get at after here is that I know that you have access to amazing musical mentors in your life. What I'm concerned about is that you don't have the same access to amazing musical business mentors in your life. And you might even be in close proximity to people who keep telling you, 
well, if you're just good enough musically, then it'll show up in your life. And that's a bunch of bull. I'm really sorry to tell you. It's not, it's not how it works. And, and there are so many professional musicians and composers that I see toiling away, being so wonderful in, and so thoughtful and so brilliant in their music making. And they don't have any of these other skills. And they wonder why they're not making it. And then they start to think, oh, well, if I, if I just work harder on the music, then it'll show up. And that's not it, friends. That's, that's what I'm here to tell you. I just really want you to know that you're doing a great job. You're building your musical life. Now it's also time to build your business musical life. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do together. So think about these things that we've talked about today. Think about the marketplace. Think about your customers. Think about those primary, secondary, tertiary audiences. Who is showing up for you? Who is listening to you? Who is paying for you to make music? Figure out why that's happening and then figure out how to build more of that into your life. So I know that that sounds overly simplistic, but I know that that part is what takes time. And so we'll keep talking about that. And as we do, I want you guys to stay sparkly and let me know whatever questions you have from this episode. I'm happy to talk about these things. Like I said at the beginning, my Twitter handle is at Mezzoinen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. And I can't wait to chat with you more. Till next time.